I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is a fellow ex-Googler, Bruce Daisley. Bruce is one of the most respected thought leaders on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. When I was at Google, he ran YouTube for Europe and then moved to become the vice president of Twitter across all of Europe. So seriously, knows what he's talking about when it comes to building a company's work culture that is not only effective, but also happy and energized. Recently, Bruce wrote a book that is The Joy of Work, which became a bestseller. And he dedicated himself to making work better using evidence and creative solutions. So, not just theory, but practical advice that really makes the difference. He is also the host of one of the top business podcasts, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which happens to be the name of his book, Across the Ocean in North America. So I'm talking to a friend here who has shared so much with me on a topic that is so interesting for me. And I hope you will find that interesting too. Bruce, it's so good to meet you. Thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. When you were in the, uh, the flush of, of your book first coming out, you were a viral sensation in the UK, I think close to Gangnam style. You know, the, the, this clip of, of you on Channel 4 News Remember was that? absolutely everywhere. Remember and, that? Uh, this tsunami of public interest. I was one of the many people who optimistically reached out to you at that time saying, I'd love to have you on my podcast. Not least because I've got a friend who worked at Google. I used to work at Google. I know. Uh, my yeah. friend who works at Google, uh, when you were, you were doing your course at Google and she came along and she said it had changed her life. And I thought, well, wow, this oh, is, man. this is such a, um, I mean, you know, most of us are so weary of declaring anything so impactful. And so I think I tried to contact you then. So I'm, I'm delighted to be talking in this capacity now. Can you imagine? So we overlapped on so many occasions. You, you were at Google until 2012, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 2013 is when I shifted from Google to Google X. But I think, I don't know, when did you join Google? 2008. So if you remember the time, I mean, the company now is sort of so vast and colossal, but, you know, it was around, I think, 20,000 people when I joined. So in fact, you know, the bit that I ended up working on YouTube and in the UK, there was like three people working on YouTube. It was like so tiny. I know. It became such an industry, but yeah, it was was minuscule in comparison then. Just to to shock you even further, I joined there a year earlier and it was 8,000 people. So from eight to 20,000 in one year. I think the acquisition of YouTube also brought a bit of a staffing everywhere and so on, but it kept growing. And it, 
I would probably say it wasn't the same as it continued to grow. I mean, I still owe my life to Google, if you want. I've learned so much, you know, all of my work on happiness and scaling happiness to a billion people is a result of some of what I learned at Google. But it definitely changed quite drastically. By the time you left to Twitter was the time I left a year later to Google X, which was still the tiny, little, smaller startup feel and so on. But I feel the bigger Google became more of a corporate, if you want. Is that what you hear? It's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, um, I've been chatting a lot recently with people who specialize in building community. And in fact, one of the people I spoke to most recently, she was hired by Google to build a community around a startup. I mean, we style our startup community in London, Silicon yeah. Roundabout, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, uh, which it speaks to the scale of it as much as anything. But um, she was brought in as part of Google Campus to build this yeah, community know, yeah. around things. Sarah's Drinkwater is her name. And, uh, but she talks about this one thing. She did this wonderful Medium post a couple of months ago. And she said something that I thought was so new, but so evidently true, which is community exists in opposition to scale in the sense that when you achieve scale with something, some of those magical bits where you just feel connected, you feel totally. understood, they exist in opposition to each other. And it's, that's why sort of, I think often a lot of, the, of us find that there's a moment in time where our jobs, our companies can be so rewarding and, and enriching. And then it's like bringing more people to the party. The energy <laughs> yeah, exactly. can change as we, we add more people to it. You speak about that a lot. The idea of 150 people is the limit. Where does that come from? I mean, is that like a, a study or? Yeah, there's an interesting, a real polymath, a guy called Robin Dunbar. I think he started as a philosophy student and he sort of got degrees in anthropology and psychology. And he found this remarkable thing. He was, um, he was studying the brains of various different apes and monkeys. And he found there was an interesting pattern where the size of their cognitive capacity seemed to determine how big the groups of apes or monkeys Interesting. were. Yes. Yeah, so for example, chimpanzees are never observed in groups of more than 13 males, one, three males. And so, you know, groups seem to have this sort of finite size and you might find them in very different environments, but there almost seems to be this limiting factor of the amount of, uh, amount of monkeys in it, the amount of apes in it in that case. And so he found himself thinking, okay, that's fascinating. Looking at the part of the brain that was related to that. And I think it was the uh, cerebral neocortex. It was all the singulate in that. And he said, as a thought experiment, he was able to track these small monkeys were in smaller groups. But as you reach chimpanzees, it was in 13. And he just took the scale of, of that part of the brain in humans. And he said, I wonder what the number would be if this does correlate. I wonder what the number would be for humans. And he got this number 150. And so the, um, the reductive mathematical trick he does now has got a flaw in it because once you start searching for any number, then you'll obviously discover it. But he discovered this was a remarkable thing that 150 was the average village size, both in England in the Doomsday Book and in France through to the, the 18th century, that, you know, the 150 people seemed to be in these environments. But then he started observing that this was also the number of troops in battalions. This wasn't an accident number it seemed to have this 
In the same way that chimpanzees were limited in the size of their groups, this seemed additionally to be a factor in the, the way that humans work. So Robin Dunbar came up with this notion that 150 was the, the limit of relationships that humans form. And it's an approximate number. He says broadly, introverts are more comfortable knowing fewer uh-huh. people and extroverts, they're more sort of generous with their affections. They, <laughs> yes. they, they will sort of distribute their their love and emotion more thinly, but more widely. But you must mean then real relationships, because I mean, you look at on Instagram today and people seem to have thousands of connections, right? So these are not real relationships. You wouldn't count them. Yeah, I think he says, obviously, so in the, in the world of digital, he says something like these are people either we would reciprocate a favor for them or we would in some capacity, I guess one test of it would be when you see someone in the supermarket, do you go over and say hi to them or do you duck and go down the, other, the next aisle? <laughs> you know, that, yeah. <laughs> I think all of us have got relationships at the periphery of our friendship group where sometimes they see us on a Saturday morning out and about and we don't necessarily want to venture over. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's some degree of relationship capital that is beyond just mere acknowledgement of them, really. But then at the core of our life and our work relationships, this becomes, it's a stress then because... You know, it's not a secret that someone like you, VP of Twitter and, you know, in Europe and someone like me, you know, chief business officer of Google X had to get to know thousands of people, like literally between your team, between your peers, between some of the influential people in their teams, between your clients. It's endless, really. huh? Yeah, and absolutely. I think this is his point that, you know, these are meaningful and significant relationships. But he talks about it being finite. So he says, we've only got the cognitive capacity to manage a finite number of these. And the moment we find ourselves, look, what's the reality of our existence right now? We can find ourselves on a Zoom call with 150 people. And I think his point, Robin Dunbar's point, is that we, as a consequence of that, we're just incapable of trusting those people. We're incapable of saying all of those people are barely acquainted with that in some way I'm I have the same strength of relationship with them so I think that's the critical thing just this notion that we can we, we hear about super connectors and these people who have just got incredible networks and I think his point is quite often those super connectors they might have transactional relationships with certain people uh-huh. but they, they don't have genuine reciprocated um, close relations. And look, at the very least, whether it is wholly true or just directionally true, I think it gives us just a really important acknowledgement that human beings, we far more than we ever want to acknowledge, we operate in finite guidelines. I always think about this when it comes to work. There's a wonderful book that's out the time we're in now. It's just as we're recording this, it came out last week by Anne Helen Peterson, who was a former journalist at BuzzFeed. And she's written a book about millennial burnout. And one of the things she says about burnout, and she says specifically millennial burnout because she believes that things have got more intense. 
But as you and I are, are not millennials, we'll regard ourselves as... Where, where, where did you get that from? I mean, I never... <laughs> okay, okay, I live with that. I think I am a millennial at heart. I, at least I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she says something that's really interesting. She said, any time we treat energy as infinite, burnout is the consequence. It's like, okay, Ooh, that's really interesting. That is really interesting. Because so often, this illusion, we can have infinite number of trusted relationships. So to the Dunbar point, we can work relentlessly with no consequence. You know, these are all lies that we tell ourselves. And to some extent, work is the lie that we tell ourselves. We sort of try to create this this sense that somehow we can work infinitely. There was something that you might have seen a couple of years ago that Elon Musk, a formidable, incredible high performer, achieves an incredible amount. But he was asked about his working week. And he said he generally works about 120, 130 hours a week. It involves him sleeping under his desk three days a week. And unfortunately, as a model that countless young people will look at him and believe that he's the archetype of alpha success. You know, he's the person. And and the consequence. Insane. It's insane. It's insane. It's also just not, it's not possible. The, the wonderful thing is there's some great research into this. There's a researcher called John Penkeville from Stanford University who looked into, he's a vast data set that goes back almost a century actually. But he looked into the amount people worked in total and how much they produced in that time yeah. and what he discovered was the more that people worked their fatigue kicks in they don't necessarily keep producing as much as they did at the start fatigue kicks in they start producing less in fact he discovered that if you want to optimize the total productivity for people over time then anything more than 50 hours work is too much and if you're working in a creative capacity if you're using your brain it's even smaller than that but of course we've got this illusion elon musk gives us reason to believe that actually working successfully is working long and it's just again it's another lie we tell ourselves so i'm totally with you by the way and especially especially as you rightly said when it comes to creative work i've you know i've recognized very quickly that i could sit and try to write for four hours or rest and relax for 40 minutes and then write for 40 minutes and I will write more when I've done that, right? Somehow there are things you can't really force, right? You can't force yourself to be creative. You can't force yourself to be intelligently solving a complex problem. You need, I think, maybe brain horsepower, if you want, brain power to run those things. And if you're tired and fatigued, that doesn't work. But at the same time, I think what you call the modern work operating system is almost the opposite of that. Every manager in the world wants their people to work 600 hours a week if they could, right? Why sleep at all if I can squeeze another 14 minutes out of you? Absolutely. And I think, you know, while sporting metaphors are always inexact, but if we'd be now post-Olympics, we'd be celebrating the stories of the Olympics. But, you know, the next generation, Simone Biles, or the next Usain Bolt, I'm certain that if they're asked their secrets for their training routines, they won't talk about, I wake up and I train for 16 hours a day. They won't be training every hour of the day. They'll be thinking, how do I optimize my performance? I'm really struck with the more that we look into all of us in some capacity in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, the thing that's going to differentiate our performance is the 
is the sort of the weird, the quirky thoughts, the, the thoughts we have that no one else has, our ability to execute something that we're probably reluctant to use the word creative because creative is what the cool people do. But, you know, innovative, imaginative, those ideas that are going to differentiate us. And when we look into the way that the brain works, those things generally don't work by us sitting down, engaging our brain and ideas come out. If you sort of look into rudimentary neuroscience, and neuroscience is so fascinating because the qualities of neuroscience have really been uh, enhanced massively in the last 20 years. The first sophisticated brain scanner, it was 1999. And so, you know, the people who were using that, people like Matt Lieberman at UCLA, they've taught us so much in those two decades since. But one of the things that neuroscience will tell us is that there's broadly three systems, you know, there's as many different systems of thinking as there are neuroscientists. But if we were to do a 101 course, yes. uh, they would say, okay, the broadly three systems of cognition the first one is called the executive attention network it's yes. you typing a, a message yeah, on your phone something. yeah exactly yeah then there's the salience network so it's checking that the room we're in is safe that you know nothing unexpected is going to happen it runs in parallel with the executive attention network but then there's a third one and it was often observed in the old days, they'd got their brand new brain scanners. They'd put someone in a, a brain scanner doing a Rubik's Cube puzzle and their brain had lit up with the executive attention network. And then the moment they stopped doing it, the brain lit up, but in other places. And some neuroscientists were baffled by that. I thought you'd just stop doing stuff. Can I ask what's going on now? And the, the subjects in the brain scanner would say, oh, um, I'm nothing. I was daydreaming. I was, I was bored. I was thinking about nothing. And this state of the brain is called the default mode. Oh, yes. It seems incredibly active when we look at the patterns of, of activity going on in our brain, but it just seems to be sort of our screensaver as sort of um, <laughs> yes. a default mode. You know, in the old days, back to you and I not being millennials, this might be something that you and I were familiar with, Mo, called boredom. Does anyone remember boredom? <laughs> yes, before the invention of mobile phones and me working at Google and you working at Twitter. Correct. We're the reason people are not bored anymore. Correct. I apologize for my sins, <laughs> I swear. Absolutely. There were times, and uh, it's it really sort of, it's one for us to relate to the next generation. There were times when we would sit and declare to our parents, declare to anyone who would listen how bored we were. And of course, it's been utterly eradicated by society, but boredom is something that, you know, activates that default mode in our head. So what's the point of all this? Well, when we look into when people have these penny drop moments, these epiphanies, these, these like aha moments, they very rarely describe a moment where they are sitting at their laptop screen thinking, I must come up with a good idea. But rather more likely, they say, oh, I had this idea when I was walking my dog. I had this idea when I was staring out the window of an Uber. I had this idea when, my favorite example, I had this idea when, according to Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the Social Network film, he wrote The West Wing, Anything with zingy, clever, intelligent dialogue, Aaron Sorkin probably wrote it. And he realized, he told Hollywood Reporter magazine, he said, I have all my best ideas in the shower. And as a consequence of that, he had a shower installed in the corner of his office. He says he takes six to eight showers a day. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just a really interesting reminder that, you know, some of us might sit there saying, I need to channel Elon Musk. I need to be just working 16 hours a day. If I'm not working 16 hours a day, something's wrong. Others of us need to think, where's my Aaron Sorkin moment? Where's my mm. moment where my allow my brain just to sort of disengage? Because what we discover is almost like balloons bouncing around inside our head. If we allow our brain to disengage, all those fabulous ideas we've got are given space to collide. And we're given space to think what would happen if we put a griddle pattern on the sole of a shoe. What would happen if we, and we just create these ideas that probably seem a little bit crazy to the people conceive of them, but you know, they often are their home to brand new innovation. So that's absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, anyone listening to us would know that to be true. I think the other side of it is my work on happiness will tell you that when the default mode network is activated or engaged, this is the time where you're telling your body, there are no threats around me. There are no tasks I need to do. I can now relax and digest my food and relax my muscles and basically rebuild my entire system. And I think burnout and stress are in an interesting way, just the result of constant activation of our sympathetic nervous system saying, basically, we are constantly under pressure, constantly under stress. And and that needs to be switched off because somehow people need to realize that when you're stressed, when you're pushed, you're producing adrenaline and other stress hormones that are basically making you feel as if a tiger is attacking you. That constant stress is actually wearing your body down in the long term. It's, it's the opposite of burnout to give yourself space, right? Very much so, very much so. But, you know, when we have role model figures like Elon Musk saying that, or Marissa Meyer, yeah. Marissa Meyer said that when she, you know, she was asked the secret of her success, 20th employee at Google, she was asked the secret of her success, and she said it was working 16 hours a day. She often didn't go to the bathroom for days at a time. My God, bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably her system saying, yeah, you don't need that. There is a tiger out here. Let's just stop the digestive system altogether. Absolutely. And the critical thing is that for any of us, there's clearly millions of people who would love to be connected with their dreams by work, by trying to liberate themselves from the situation they find themselves in. And, you know, hearing that the model of achieving that is working longer and harder, I think sometimes is, is unhelpful. So there are two sides of this. The title of your wonderful book, which I want to dive deep into, is The Joy of Work. I mean, there is somehow people forget that you should also enjoy that process. It's not just a tax that you pay to advance in life, but at the same time, I think people just overestimate work. I mean, there are so many people I know that define themselves by their work. When you give them a vacation for a couple of weeks, by two days in, they'll just jump back on work because they don't have a meaning in their life otherwise. And I think these are pointers to a time where it's not just boredom, but I have to say it's, I don't want to call it shallowness, but I mean, if the only thing in life that interests you is work and the only thing that in life that you strive for is, is more success and more money, is this really a life that's worth living at all? Yeah, I think it's really critical. I'm doing something at the moment. I'm writing something at the moment, which is about the myth of resilience. One of the things you become immensely clear on is that there is something that 
is about our fortitude, our strength, ability to bounce back. And one of the key components of it is our identity. And suddenly for a lot of people, and this is why identity for illustration, a lot of children of immigrants will tell you that it was impressed upon me that I needed to work hard because no one owed me a living. And, you know, so, so identity, one of the reasons why you can find so many children of immigrants have submitted patent applications or start new businesses is because, you know, identity can be actually an incredibly motivating force behind us. But what we have witnessed in the last few years, really, sort of broadly, the idea of a career is a late 20th century invention. But what we have witnessed over the the last few years is that people have allowed their job to become their identity and to the exclusion of almost everything else. And so it's actually a really unhealthy balance. I was really struck when Slack was created, one of the things that the the founders, because they'd they said it was not our first rodeo. So they'd done these things before. And there was a recognition that in fact it made for more interesting colleagues if they had passions, interests, and curiosities that extended beyond their job. So almost rather than it being a distraction from the job, going out and having an obsessive skateboarding habit, being a a graffiti artist, helping renovate an old boat, all of these things added to the color of what people brought back to the office afterwards. And I think when work becomes our identity in a very sort of binary way, it's probably at the detriment of of our feeling accomplished by other things. Yeah. I mean, you're probably yeah. a bigger expert on that than me. But then here's the question. So I, so I feel that, I mean, you and I remember the Google we joined, for example, was a Google that enabled things like that. But most people don't have this yeah. in their workday. I mean, for me and you, senior at our jobs, we can say this is how the work environment should be. But if you are an individual you're afraid, you're worried. If you're not engaged 12-hour days, you're going to be perceived as lazy. If you don't respond to the email as soon as it comes in, your boss will say you're not responsive. If you're not in every meeting, I know you have a bug about meetings, so I wanted to insert that you know, sentence in there, right? So what would an individual do? Forget companies, which I think are stupid not to do those things, because basically they're burning their people out and not getting their most creativity. But let's talk about me as an individual. What can I do? You started your book, for example, with 12 practices. As an individual, what can I do? Yeah, I think the the reason why I constructed my book in that way was that, and I should point out to people that um, the joy of work is sort of the international title, but it's also called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat in the US. And the only reason I tell Ah. you that is because some people have bought both and they've probably thought, (laughs) but they've not told me. That's a very good way to become a bestseller, my friend. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect a lot of people think, you know, I liked his first one, but his second one was very derivative. Um, (laughs) There wasn't much new in it. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, the inspiration for me was there was a really interesting book about 10 years ago by the two guys who set up Basecamp, Jason Freed, and the other guy calls himself DHH. I don't know his full name. But they, they wrote this book called Rework, and it was like 
this series of 80 spiky opinion film filled polemics about ASAP is toxic, for example. And it's impossible not to be moved by sort of, it's a box of fireworks. It's, it's really sort of exhilarating read. But the challenge of it is that if you turn up at your office and you say, or you turn up at a, in a Zoom call or hangout, whatever, and you say to your boss, hey, we need to change this. And all you're giving is opinion, then you'll change nothing. And so my frustration with that book was that I loved it, but I wanted to feel empowered by it. I wanted to be a manifesto that I could press into someone's hand. And so my feeling when I sort of set about writing a book was I wanted there to be so much evidence in there that anyone who maybe did feel disempowered, disillusioned, could say, okay, well, look, look, they could maybe say, I'm never going to change every aspect of my work, but I can say to my boss, I think we should change one thing and here's the evidence for it. So look, if you're going to change one thing in an organization, the first thing I would set about doing is trying to reduce weekend emails. If you've got a weekend email culture, it can be one of the most exhaustingly toxic things that just gradually ticks by. And we can all find ourselves, it often can feel quite benign answering an email on a Saturday morning because it feels like it's just getting it out of my inbox. But the consequence of it is that people reach a, a level of exhaustion exhaustion, that burnout that we talk about before, when we can't switch off from our jobs, we just feel like our jobs are all consuming, that they surround us, that yes, they become our identity. So, you know, if I was going to do one thing, I would say, set about seeing if you can reduce weekend emails. If you don't have weekend emails, then what can you do to try and push back and maybe reclaim your evenings from having to delve into emails? And the more that we can sort of put barriers up between us and our work, it's not in the service of making us disconnected with our jobs. All of the evidence suggests it makes us feel more fondly connected with our jobs. Mm. You call it, I remember the name, a digital Sabbath. That's what you call it, right? Mm. I call it a digital detox. As a matter of fact, I try really, really hard to take every other weekend completely switched off. So I have no devices connected at all. And would you think an individual should do that, even if their boss, I mean, I'll say on my side, if you know, if I received an email from my boss when I was working at Google on a weekend, I would simply respond back and say, okay, I'll come back to you Monday morning. You know, I'm away this weekend or I don't have my computer with me. Can't do that on a phone, but quickly here is your, your indicator, but I'm not going to put work, real work in it. Do you think that works against an employee, against their career, against their promotions? We, of course, the very nature of you and I discussing this is that we had privilege in the sense that we had, even when we had bosses and layers of bosses, but we had the privilege that our status was such that if we pushed back and said, I'll answer this on Monday, our status was such that people would accept that. Of course, there's a lot of people at the early stage of their career who believe it's a bit like a dog fetching a stick, that they want to they want to look like if it comes to this person's responsible for the evolution of their career, they want to look like they're collecting the stick and they're collecting it with a, a big wagging tail and a smile on their face. And so my feeling about these things is that the only way to do it is consensual and collegiate. So the best way to do it is for, and you know, I literally had this exact discussion when I was at Twitter, we had 
very much living in the shadow of Google, living in the shadow of Facebook, these formidable, incredible scaled businesses. And, you know, we were were sort of a a tiny little tugboat compared to their ocean liners. And so as a consequence, a lot of us felt like we need to work harder. That needs to be our difference compared to the people at the, the big firms. We need to work harder. And the way it was manifested, we had a spate of people resigning with no jobs to go to. And it it was at one stage, our chief operating officer said to a group of us, he said, what is this? He said, people at Google don't resign with no job to go to. People at Facebook aren't resigning with no job to go to. Even some of these, the other companies, what is this? And it was simply because that seemingly benign idea that we're going to work harder has a consequence back to what Anne Helen Peterson says. Anytime we treat energy is infinite, burnout is what results. And we were witnessing that a few people were just wanting to demonstrate that a commitment, they wanted to work hard, but they were going home and they were feeling spent. And they were getting themselves into, you know, I always think of the psyche of people. If people are resigning with no job to go to, they've had some sleepless Sunday nights. They've had some some anxious Monday mornings where they're mulling over the prospect. You know, they've sat in the car park outside somewhere. They've, They've lingered at the coffee shop. They've thought is this thing making me unhappy? And so, look, we created a rule collectively in the room that none of us were going to email at the weekend. And let me tell you, it took exactly seven, eight days before the boss emailed us at the weekend. And I felt at that stage, it was really important that me, someone who's a level below him, I should hold us true to what we agreed. And so, you know, it became my thing, whether it was the the number two in the company, the number one in the company would never do this. He's like the most balanced. Jack Dorsey's sort of the most empathetic when it comes to those things. But the number two in the company might email someone on the, the weekends. And I would just privately say, hi, just a quick one. A few of us have agreed that one of the best ways that we can be everyone feeling burnt out is that we don't email at the weekend. I wonder if you could just hold true to that and maybe we don't do it. So there's a couple of things there. I think decisions can be made in a collegiate way. If you say, listen, I want to bring to our next team discussion, should we think about the way we work? Should we debate it? Here's a paper from Harvard Business Review. Here's an article from New York Times. I wonder if we could think about this and then let's have a discussion about two things that we could change about the way we're working. And I think if anyone enters into it like that, far more about our job is negotiable and changeable than we imagine. But I feel that we sort of need to enter into a unthreatening consensual way, really. I love that. I actually think this is In an interesting way, I mean, you're very practical in your advice. You're very data-driven. You offer a lot of of very solid advice. But I feel that at the very core of your work is that idea of human connection, that work becomes so much easier if humans connect to humans. A lot of your tips are around, you know, take walking meetings, you know, go have lunch breaks. Even if you're in a meeting, leave the phone outside, be in the meeting, be with the people. It seems to me that what you're attempting to do is to say, if I can connect with other humans at a human level at work, I will feel a lot better. I'll feel more empowered. I'll feel more trust. I'll feel that I can achieve more and so on and so forth. So is that part of it? You know, the idea of having a conversation around the issues That's again, that's the way a real good connected human would do it, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think these things are far more visceral and baked into us than we like to imagine. When we observe, it's the reason why I've become obsessed with this notion of community. I've become obsessed with how humans can feel part of something. There's a really interesting a sort of tragic data set, which is, you know, the average American says that they have one single friend in the world that they could tell private things to. Oh my God. And so 75% of Americans say they have one single friend in the world. And so, you know, as a consequence, some don't even have that. And some, I guess it's a, a small number that have more of it, but far more than we recognize. And you talked about Instagram connections and Facebook friends, far more than we recognize we live a fairly isolated life. And when work is at its best, it does forge this human connection between us and other people. Most of us, when we've had moments reflecting on the way that work's changed and this sort of strange moment we're living through, the things that we fondly go to are those moments of laughter, those moments of awestruck invention where one of your colleagues has done something amazing or everyone is together celebrating someone. These are the moments of connection. You know, the broadly, they are our fond moments. And there's so much evidence that humans seem to be, firstly, even the introverts amongst us were programmed to get a lot of our energy from the people we're around. It seems to be transformational on our cognition. You can look into athletes together and get them to exercise alongside each other and their performance goes up and their endorphin levels go up or you put uh, groups of humans together and you ask them to start singing they can start singing britney spears songs and they you get them <laughs> together and you say to them at the end of it uh, what do you think of all these people even if the people they were singing with were strangers they have a euphoric connection with them you know we can put strangers dancing together and it seems to elevate their state of mind and it seems that you know any time we feel a connection kinetic or otherwise with people around us it elevates our state of mind and i think it's an important reminder especially as a lot of us are working through screens right now that if we can unlock that sense of connecting with other people it seems to be in something incredibly powerful I'm not sure if you know the book lost connections which is very adjacent to yours by johan hari so johan hari wrote this wonderful book. And if people don't know Johan Hari, then his two TED talks are, his first one is about narcotics and society's addiction to narcotics. And the second one, ostensibly, and this is the one I'm recommending, is about depression. But what he says is he says, broadly, to skip through 18 minutes of brilliant oration, he says, broadly, if we were to substitute the word depression with disconnected, it's almost such a precise synonym that okay. you, almost nothing is lost in value. And it's really interesting because his point is we're living increasingly disconnected lives. One of the things he describes in there, you know, these sort of vivid moments in some books that are such, that single moment, it's like, it's the made-to-stick moment. And um, he describes one piece of academic research. People who sleep alone generally wake up about 15 times a night. They call these things in psychology are called micro awakenings. People who sleep alone wake up 15 times a night. Why? Because naturally we're programmed that alone is danger. 
it's only Europe and North America where babies sleep alone. Why? Because we're programmed that this is not a natural state to be. And so, you know, if you play these things through, then making sure that maybe our work can be in service of us, feeling connected to other people can actually be one of the superpowers that propels our work to be more effective and, and more rewarding, actually. I love that. And I actually struggle as well a little bit with the idea of feeling rewarded, feeling doing something meaningful and worthwhile at work. So you sometimes talk about doing something meaningful reignites your love for work. But meaningful, I think, has been sold to us by, again, the Elon Musks of the world and, and the Harvard Business Reviews and so on, as meaningful must be like a mega thing that is worthy of a TED Talk. But meaningful at work could be small tasks, right? It could be small things that are not just responding to email, not just attending a meeting, but they're more, I've achieved something today. I've changed someone's life today. I've helped someone out today. Do you believe that this is also part of that connection? Absolutely. Sometimes one of the things that is talked about with regards to work is purpose. But purpose, I chatted to Dan Pink, who's a, a workplace expert, and he said, look, purpose doesn't necessarily have to be this big, august thing. And in fact, I think quite often purpose is this sort of capital P, big, august thing is often really misappropriated by firms. And sort of responsible for a lot of the misdirection that we have about work. But purpose can be this small P purpose, which is just, you know, I did something because I felt that it made someone else's life better. I did something because me working hard here puts my mum on a plane to vacation. You know, it can be sort of these small P purposes as well as these, these big P purposes. So I think absolutely any sort of personal connection with why we're working can be incredibly motivating. That can give us an innate sort of intrinsic motivation, really. Mm, I love that. So Bruce, let me close with my closest tip from you to my heart. But before I do that, on the topic of purpose, I want to remind everyone that the purpose of this podcast is to make a billion people happy. I'm never going to reach a billion people, but let's make that your purpose too today. So reach as many people as you can. If you are enjoying the conversation with Bruce as much as I am, then rate this thing a five stars, tell people about it on social media and teach people what you learned today. Tell them about Bruce's book. And let's just jump into my favorite thing. So you call it the monk mode morning. Your tip basically is about starting your mornings in a monk mode. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, there's a really interesting thing about co-discovery of ideas. And so a lot of us know that Albert Einstein used to wear the same clothes every day and he used to have a wardrobe full of the same outfits. But when he was asked about that, Albert Einstein said he found that when he turned up at the lab to start thinking his work and doing his work, he felt like his brain was emptier and clearer and ready. It was like like he had a blank sheet of paper in front of him. Someone told me that Barack Obama used to have someone who would go around with him, avoiding him making trivial decisions. They decided what Barack Obama was having for lunch. They decided where he was going to sit in a room. They decided what he was going to do. Why? Well, probably the best way to describe it is that Daniel Leverton wrote a book called The Organized Mind. And he said something in The Organized Mind. He said, our brains are designed to make a a certain number of decisions per day. And once we reach that limit, we're unable to make any more, regardless of how important they are. And I think what happens is, you know, back to the overwhelming point of today is that, you know, finite is the truth about the human capacity to do anything. And 
what all of these people have realized is that actually if we limit the things that we do, we seem to get more out of our brain. And the notion of monk mode morning is that if we have an hour an hour and a half without other distractions before you've maybe opened your social media for the day, before you've delved into solving that email problem that someone's contacted you. If you have an hour of uninterrupted work, what you discover, like monks being uninterrupted in their uh, silent retreats, what you discover is you unlock this incredible productivity. And I think for me, it's been my obsession is starting the day with two hours of podcasts about American politics, which isn't necessarily good for mental health. But, um, <laughs> Not at all, especially nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> and I have them at 1.8 speed. It's like anyone who walks into the room when I'm doing it thinks that I'm sort of giving myself electric shock treatment. Um, <laughs> but what I've discovered on the days that I need to produce, to write, to create, I don't do that. I go straight to an uninterrupted hour, hour and a half of working. And what you discover is that you discover this sort of, it's like fresh muscles. It's like sort of fresh powder on the, the mountains. It unlocks this incredible productivity in you. And I think, you know, for me, most of us can find an hour, an hour and a half a week with no interruptions. Even if we have to tell our colleagues, hey, I'm Thursday between nine and 10. I'm not going to be on email. I'm not going to be on Slack. But what yeah. we discover is that when we set time aside for those things, the removing ourselves from interruptions and using the freshness of our minds can be incredibly empowering. Mm. Yeah, I used to call those thinking times. Believe it or not, I didn't call them monk mornings, but I had thinking times where basically I would plug them into my calendar. And when I'm in my thinking time, I'm not reading email. I'm not responding to random requests. I'm not in meetings. I'm just focusing on a task that is a little more important than what keeps being thrown at me randomly. I've taken so much of your time. I am so grateful. It's always, always, always to connect. I mean, we didn't work together at Google, but I feel you're, you're my buddy. I'm really, really grateful, Bruce. I think you've uh, You've told us quite a bit about some of what we can do to be happier, find the joy of work, but also be more productive and more impactful. I am grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mo. So great to talk to you. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.